Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. There is a time for every season under heaven, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. For many, these words call to mind a beautiful ballad lamenting the futility of war. However, for the preacher in Jerusalem, the list of dichotomies presented in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 speak to something far more difficult. Inasmuch as war is as certain as peace and tears are as certain as laughter, all things, even the things we hate, are a gift from God. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 73 of the Bible as Literature podcast, episode 73 and chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. I had the opportunity with the unfortunate passing of your father and the funeral during the visitation before the funeral to have Ecclesiastes read during the entire time. We found out just for those listening it takes almost exactly half an hour at a relatively slow pace to read through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So I had the opportunity to read Ecclesiastes through twice. Wonderful. And it was a great opportunity for me because in reading it aloud, over a dead body standing right in my vision, I had the opportunity to hear how Ecclesiastes weaves together these themes of wisdom and death. In one chapter, you have wisdom and then death, and the next chapter, death and then wisdom, and they're always interrelated. And it was significant that on a day of a funeral that we would see that wisdom comes in the face of death because I was literally in front of the face of a dead body. Right. And hopefully, by the grace of Ecclesiastes and the preacher, I was made a little bit wiser from that and had more insight into the book of Ecclesiastes because it really is trying its hardest to confront us with our death and the futility of existence so that we can understand what life is for. We can't say just because it's futile doesn't mean there's nothing right. because we are still alive. We can't deny the fact that we're alive, but everything else we can deny. So then what's the point of being alive? And that is really what the preacher is trying to figure out. And I think he starts to address this very important question in chapter 3. But hopefully, in terms of my father, people will be able to learn from the example of my father's death what their purpose, according to Scripture, is for the rest of their life. Because that, after all, is what we hope for in every eulogy and in every funeral, that the person's life would give life by bearing witness to God's life-giving instruction. That's exactly it. Ecclesiastes is the testimony to someone who tried to confront death, a king who had all the means at his disposal, confronted death, and what he could learn from that and then what he teaches. And that's why it's called 
the preacher. So we're going to go back to the ancient Near East, but for those of you who are Americans listening to this text, it's going to feel like we're about to go back to 1965. So brace yourself. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. I can hear the song. A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Sometimes when one thinks of the song, it sounds very happy. And so we have these kind of happy, productive, and more sad and destructive forces, and we see them going back and forth. And sometimes we can read it as, even though there is a time to mourn, there's also a time to dance, so don't feel so sad. But it's also saying there is a time to dance and there's a time to mourn. So when you're mourning, remember that there's a time for dancing. When you're dancing, remember there's a time for mourning. But ultimately, what's the net progress you're making? Zero. Whatever you build up, is going to be destroyed. Whatever you plant is going to be cut down. And so there's no net progress. Whatever happens, unhappens. Whatever is done is undone. And that's how everything is. That's what it means to be temporal. That's what it means to be fleshly. That it's always going to go back to the state before. They're not going to make any progress. There's no forward progress. It's anti-Hegelian. See, I think this is reflected, actually, in the New Testament notion of the keros, the opportunity in the present moment. Because here, when you are giving birth, you have to understand that there'll be a time when this child dies and there's no way around it. But the question is, what do you do with the now? Now, I want to come back again always to this very important statement you made when we were exegeting chapter one together, that Paul fills the now with love and with the Torah. So you're right. It's not that you are progressing from something to something. It's that you are in the now, which is precious, whether it's life or death, peace or war. It's the now that counts. And in the now, what are you going to do under the sun? I think we're being set up to explore this question. So I'll continue with verse 9. After having all of these dichotomies beautifully laid out, I mean, beautiful Hebrew poetry, breathtaking poetry. What prophet, he asks, is there to the worker from that which he toils? So we come right back again to what you're saying, this anti-Hegelian perspective, this post-apocalyptic perspective of Scripture in the words of the preacher. I think this is important to think of in the modern world because we assume that everything is progressing to a better and better state. But when we look at reality, the more progress we make, the more poverty we make, the more healing we make, the more suffering we make. It's important to see the balance of the two, that there is not just one and the other, but there's also a kind of harmony that exists with both of them, that we have both of them together. What gain is the worker from his toil? You're not going to get ahead. This is 
against the American dream, this verse. You're not going to get ahead. Oh, if you work hard, then you'll get ahead, and then the next generation will be ahead of that. The next generation will get ahead of that. And then we're saying, oh my goodness, what happened to the present generation where we're not better off than our parents before us? Well, there's a time for economies to grow. There's times for economies to shrink. What did you think was going to happen? And be ye not deceived. Be ye not deceived. When you start imagining what's going to happen, and that's exactly where we're headed in this text, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see this is an expression of frustration that a lot of people feel. That they have this idea of the beginning and the end in eternity. I'm hoping that, I imagine that I'll be alive for eternity. Heaven will be like, and people keep struggling with those things. How do I preserve my soul for eternity? And they start thinking about eternity. They try to think of these things. Yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He strives to understand these things, but he can't. So what you and I have been focusing on is, well, what do you do now? How about the present moment? For some reason, this eternity distracts us from the current moment. And is the moment a moment of building or of tearing down, of loving or of hating, of mourning or of dancing? What time is it right now? And don't worry about what's happening. You can't control what's happening. Worry about whether or not you are obedient to the task which God has assigned to you in this moment. I think that is key. I know that there is nothing better for them to do than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. This is what I mean by being thankful. Whatever cards you're dealt, whatever time you land in, whatever you face in the moment, it's from the hand of the Lord, so rejoice. Delight in it. It's your life and it's precious. Why is it so hard to understand that the life you have now is precious and worthy of rejoicing? Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. This has everything to do with what a correct funeral is. Again, calling to mind our prayer this weekend in which we commemorated the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the life of my dad. I think the point is that it is God's teaching which he put in the hand of Paul that remains forever. What God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. We love dancing. We don't like mourning so much. We like harvesting and eating, but we don't like planting so much. So we have to understand that we need to take God's point of view. And when I say God's point of view, I don't want anyone imagining that they're up in the heavens looking down. On it. That's not what I'm saying. No, but it's post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic. From an eternal vantage point, let me put it this way. Let's live according to the assumption that it's all good and it's all beautiful because it all comes from the hand of God. Let's live according to that. And then we say the morning is then just as beautiful as the rejoicing. Now, in our gut, it doesn't feel right. That's the part we need to put aside. Put aside the gut and think from this point of view. We have to make that assumption. God has done it so that people fear before him. What we're supposed to do is when it says fear, we're supposed to bow to him. We're supposed to submit to him and say, if God has set things up this way, then this is good. In the same way in Genesis 1, it's all set up and it's good. We're supposed to go in with that assumption that it's all good. At the funeral, some people are like, oh, this is so difficult. Oh, this is so hard. Yes, it's hard. It's difficult, but it's not bad. 
it's still beautiful because it comes from the hand of God. Your father's death is beautiful as his life was beautiful. His being born is beautiful as his being taken is beautiful. And when you don't view it and accept it as such, a man's death has no gravitas. I cannot stress it enough that the power and the honor in death comes from the hand of the Lord. And if you do not submit to the Lord and accept even death as the good from the hand of the Lord, not good philosophically, but good because it's from the hand of the Lord, even though it stings you personally, if you don't embrace that, and if instead you tell fairy tales about how Paul is happy now and everything is fine, if you talk this way, cheap talk, you emasculate and dishonor the one who's lying in the coffin and you consign them to the dust from which they were taken because without the honor that the gospel crowns the dead with there is no life when we see that this death comes as i said at the very beginning of this episode we are supposed to gain wisdom and wisdom comes from this fear of god fear of god is the beginning of wisdom and what is the fear of God? That God dispatches everything. Absolutely. And once you understand that, then you have a chance at wisdom. So we say, okay, your father's dead. How is this beautiful? What is beautiful of this? What's beautiful is the wisdom. What happened, both in this instance and in every instance, everyone has to rethink their values. Correct. Everyone has to rethink what they thought was important, what they were striving after, what they were hoping to accomplish, how they were trying to get better and better, improve their lives. Say, I improved my life and I'm going to end up in that very same spot. What is the improvement? That's what's so difficult. And I ask you to contemplate the power of a text written thousands of years ago by people who are long since gone. How in a society that prides itself with progress, how that text could raise questions that people in our day do not ask, and then how you could realize that and tell me that there is such a thing as progress. That is the power of scripture. It's the will of God from beyond the grave by the hand of those who put it in writing for our sake. It's a big deal to me that something so old that has been forgotten is so relevant and so new to the American ear. It is our hope. People often will say, God only wants us to be happy. Doesn't God just want us to be happy? God wants us to be wise. With wisdom, maybe happiness will come, but God wants us to be wise. And that's why this text was preserved through providence to our present eyes. That which has already been and that which will be has already been, which is what we were just talking about. For God seeks what has passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. So it's going back and forth. So he talked about the justice and the judgment of God, but he's saying even so, there's going to be wickedness again. There's going to be disobedience. I mean, wickedness is technical in Scripture. Well, this is for the activists listening who say, why is there wickedness? Why is there unrighteousness? Because there is. Because there is, and there always is. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. So wherever there's justice, there's going to be wickedness. Is there going to come a day when we're going to eradicate injustice? No. In the same way that we're not going to eradicate pain and suffering. Right. It's part of the way that things work. It's the yin and the yang of the universe. But he continues, 
And again, this is why when scholars try to emasculate Ecclesiastes by saying that the verses on judgment were inserted, to me, because of the way I was formed by my teacher, it sounds cheap and intellectually dishonest. That's what it sounds like to me. Because the modern nihilist wants so desperately to say that nothing has any meaning so that he can do whatever he wants and satisfy his own lusts. To me, this is the corruption of modern scholarship, is that it's self-serving. Like many fields, I mean, you could say the same of the priesthood. You could say the same of the legal field, where lawyers who were appointed to defend the rights of the downtrodden use their field for self-gain. Scholars do this all the time. But to say that the notion of judgment is inserted is a betrayal of the text because it's interwoven with all of these ideas. So you have, again, in verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. In other words, in the kairos, in the moment, the judgment of God prevails in the good and in the bad. The injustice that we see around us is also from the hand of God. And that's what's most difficult for people. You know, the activists among us who say we're doing the will of God by eradicating injustice, maybe, maybe not. What are you going to do if you're a Palestinian and God sends the Israeli against you as his judgment? Or if you're an Israeli and God sends the Palestinian, what are you going to do? And you're an activist. What do you say in that moment? Do you curse God and die? Do you lie to yourself and say that God is on your side? Or do you submit to God by submitting to your neighbor? I think in that instance, there's only two honest ways you can go about it. You can say, this is from the hand of God, and therefore it is beautiful. Or another way that I've heard it from a Holocaust survivor who became an atheist, who said, maybe there is a God. If there is, I don't like him very much. He's honest. He's honest. I would prefer that response than the one who says God is on my side. Because to say God is on my side is delusional. You can say, I'm against God. At least you're being honest. Correct. I'm against God. I don't like the parts of life that I don't like. Okay, I think you're a fool, but I don't think you're dishonest. And there's a big difference. I said to myself concerning the sons of men... God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. And, you know, what's funny about this is that the fundamentalists, when they have a crisis over evolution, the first thing they ask is, are you saying that we're no different than the animals, Father Mark? No, I'm not saying that. The preacher in Jerusalem is saying that. (laughs) It's right there in plain language, right in front of you. We are no different than the animals. We eat, we drink, we urinate, we defecate, and we live, are born, and die just like the beast. There is no difference in the way that we live out our lives. For the fate, and this is Genesis all the way, Richard, this is Genesis in flesh and blood, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same ruh the same breath, the same spirit. And there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. So the next time someone asks you, do animals have souls or spirits or whatever, say, well, 
read Ecclesiastes. They're no different than we are. I think it's worth noting here that it says that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. So there's something inherent in the human being that we want to see that we're better than beasts. There's something arrogant about us. Yes, we are sons of Adam, as the good book says. We don't want to accept the fact that we were taken from the same ground as the adder and the lion. And that is our grave sin. It's our hubris. And so the testing, which we saw a lot in, for example, the Book of the Twelve, crushing them because they need to understand that they are going to live and die just like a beast is. They're going to suffer when there's no food. They're going to suffer when there's no drink. They're going to suffer when they get stabbed just like a beast. And this is what God is trying to teach in those moments that, humanly speaking, are horrible. Right. God is continually testing and teaching so that they understand they're beasts. They are temporary. They're temporal. They're not eternal. Even if they can imagine eternity, they're not eternal. Anyone, Paul says, who thinks that he is something when he is nothing deceives himself. The preacher continues, all go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. And he says this in a chapter where he just reminded us that the only thing that is eternal is what comes from the Lord. Very powerful, forceful, meaningful chapter. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? He's making fun of people who try to argue that there's a difference between man and animal. We go to heaven and the animals go away. Who says? Your catechesis book? Well, your catechist did not read Ecclesiastes, obviously. Or didn't go to a funeral. Or when he went to a funeral, had blinders over his eyes and wax in his ears. Didn't look at what was right in front of his face, but was spending all their time up in their head imagining what was happening. Look upon death, kiss the forehead of your father, and feel how cold it is so that you know that the Lord is never mocked in his teaching that all men return to the dust and we are no different than any other of God's precious creatures. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. Not that he should pursue happiness, as my father would say, but that he should be content in what he is doing right now, which is assigned by the hand of God, who is the only one who holds the totality in his hand. For that is man's lot. That is his place. That, as we say in English, those are the cards he was dealt. Enjoy the cards you're dealt. I have a really lousy hand. Well, enjoy that lousy hand because there's no reshuffle. You know what I think of when I hear this text, what it makes me think of is those old war movies, especially Vietnam movies, where you're in the jungle, you're getting eaten by mosquitoes, and you're probably going to die a horrible death, but, you know, you can smoke a cigarette. And it doesn't matter if it'll give you lung cancer. If you had the opportunity for lung cancer at that point, it would be wonderful. So just sit down and have a cigarette. Make the best of it. That's it. That's the key. It's perspective. That's what wisdom is. And it's lost on our generation, but that's why we have to preach this text. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Nobody. I mean, that's God's perspective. All you know is what's now. It's beautiful from the hand of God. So enjoy it. The wisdom to say this is beautiful and from God's hand allows you the opportunity to be happy even in a time of misery, even if it is a time of death or mourning or scattering or hate or all the bad things we had in the original 
list of dichotomies, if you understand that it is a time under the heavens, a time from God, a time that is beautiful, then you can still work to feel gratitude, to feel grateful in what are seemingly impossible, wicked moments. Thanks so much, Dr. Benton. Thank you. Great discussion today. Take care. Thank you, folks. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.